This is Impulse Live Edition with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome to our first podcast live from Western Regional SAEM. That's right. And SAEM stands for the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. And Western Regional SAEM is just that. It's a regional conference for emergency medicine physicians who are interested in academics. So this conference is a place for people who are setting the agenda for emergency medicine on the West Coast to talk about what that looks like. And we have medical students, residents, faculty, all talking about what emergency medicine looks like and where we are going. You know, Sarah, I don't know about you, but I had a ton of fun today just walking around, meeting new friends, and catching up with old friends. It's kind of fun to see that spectrum of learners and to all learn together. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen some of our residents from UC Davis and obviously some of our faculty as well. And then some of our medical students are here, even some first-year med students. And I've gotten to catch up with some friends from UCLA. So I agree. It's been a really fun day. Yeah, and what a beautiful spot to do it here in Napa, California. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. As I was driving in this morning, there were hot air balloons on the horizon. Just absolutely beautiful. That tells you how early we started today. (laughs) (laughs) That we were chasing the hot air balloons across the Napa Valley. That's right. And so today, we actually are going to be trying out a new format for you guys. So um, rather than our usual rehearsed and well-edited episodes, this one's going to be a little more off the cuff, and we're actually going to be summarizing the highlights of today. Yeah. And to start off, the conference actually did had a little pre-conference. It was, what was it, the Challenging Airway Course? Advanced Advanced Airway Course. Airway course <laughs> thank you. It was a pre-conference that was on Advanced Airway. And Eric Lauren, who is a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, he's also the vice chair for education and all-around airway guru or nerd, as some people would say. <laughs> he and his team shared a couple of key points Um, from the pre-conference with us. And I actually, as I was talking with Eric and seeing what he was doing, um, I was thinking back to our previous heartbeat with Levitan. And Eric actually said some of the same principles when you're approaching any advanced airway, kind of just think of it very calmly and know that you have the skills to take it one step at a time. You're just going to do this step and then you're going to move on to this step and this step. And it's just kind of going back to those fundamentals or those basics. Um, Eric also did this really cool thing where he actually used the scope and numbed up his own nose and then showed it live. Oh, yeah. He put the fiber optic right yeah. down his own nose right and down. did his own NP scope. <laughs> <laughs> and I caught up with Eric to talk a little bit about that. And this is what he said. Well, I tell you, I used a big scope. Usually when I do this, I use like a three millimeter scope, but for this one, it was a five millimeter scope. And that's very uncomfortable. Five millimeter scopes are usually what we're using to intubate people through the nose, and there's not much space in the nose. And you realize that very quickly when you're sticking the scope down your own nose. So <laughs> anesthesia of the nose is really important. Use the lidocaine very liberally and make sure that everything is topicalized nicely. That was probably what helped me the most today. Still kind of sniffing all the lidocaine that I put in my, th- in my nose and throat. So very interesting procedure. Yeah, I could, as you were talking about it, I was kind of summarizing it in my mind of like, numb, 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 numb. You just got to be numb. Just got to be numb. Yeah, and then I caught up with a few other participants, and here were some of the highlights. Well, I learned that uh, it's kind of like riding a bike, but I also learned some new tools like the GlideScope and practicing my NP-scope skills. For those of us attendings that don't work that much clinically, I thought that was really, really helpful, and there's so many more tools than when I was a resident. 
So when we have a supraglottic airway, you can take a quick look. Instead of going through the, the hole, you can take a quick look with the VL or DL and approach from the side. It was with a bougie, and that was a new trick that I learned today. I learned that it takes five minutes to do a, a surgical airway, four and a half minutes to decide to do it, and then 30 seconds to do it. Yeah. I love that you caught that, Tara, and I think that's a really funny summary. Yeah, and then we moved on to Dr. Andra Blumkalns, who's professor and chair of emergency medicine at Stanford University. She was the keynote speaker for the day, and she is a well-known physician leader and investigator who's interested in wellness and what that means for us as emergency medicine providers. Now, one of my favorite parts of Dr. Blumkalns' talk was when she told this hilarious story of her attempt at going to a revitalizing yoga camp, which then ended up being her, quote, starvation yoga camp, and didn't end up being much of a wellness promoter in any way. So if yoga's not the answer, what is? Um, yeah, well, I, you know, there are lots of, I think that's immediately the conjure up the image of the lotus flower and the person sitting in, you know, yoga poses and that sort of thing. I do... I do think that's part of it. I do feel as though mindfulness has a significant role in helping burnout and facilitating wellness. But I think where most of us are, you know, from STEM fields necessarily and maybe scientifically minded, that it seems too soft for us. We don't think it, it kind of has this notion of being, um, I don't know, maybe even slightly religious or cultish or something, that it's not actually a tool. And I think if we rephrase the conversation and say, these are tools that you can use to help you if you're burned out or if you want to facilitate wellness, and make them very objective, make them available. We have to focus on it in, from two different ways. One, our individual uh, component of it and how we can help ourselves but then also our responsibility to help the system understand and change the system to make it better. Um, one cannot work without the other. This problem is not going to go away no matter how much yoga we do or how much we exercise. Now, that being said, there, there is, we do know that exercise and good nutrition and hydration do help physiologic parameters of burnout, stress, and so forth. So there's something there. I don't want to completely you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater with that. There's definitely something there, but I think it's the way we look at it and the way we look at it within the context of a greater solution across the system and across individuals and not just putting the burden on the individual to go do more yoga. I wanted to hear from her what she would tell a medical student who's interested in going into emergency medicine about wellness. Well, I really want them to go in eyes wide open. I feel as though we've sold emergency medicine, because we're great recruiters, we can, I mean, it's a very exciting story to sell, right? You see patients in their greatest time of need, you get to do procedures, the shift work is great because you have time off, you know when you're off, you're not on call, all that's a great story. But understanding that, hey, working nights and weekends sometimes can be tough. It doesn't mean it's an, like a non-starter at that point, but the recognition that it's not all sunshine and roses, that we have, there are some challenging pieces to it particularly if you want to go into academic emergency medicine, because the academic universe does not stop just because you have a string of night shifts. And how do you make that work? I mean, there are ways I think the universe is getting more accepting of working from home and using Zoom conference calling and that sort of thing. I'm not trying to plug Zoom. I'm just using conference calling. <laughs> um, but, you know, that there are better ways of doing it. And I think people are accepting more that people can sometimes do their work at home, particularly their academic work. 
I think that's more common here on the West Coast. I don't think that's as pervasive as you go further east. You know, Sarah, it was interesting because at the break, we caught up with some conference attendees to see what really stuck with them from the day. And they wanted to keep talking about wellness. They wanted to continue that conversation. For some reason, this topic really resonated with attendees of all stages. So, you know, as a resident, many of my colleagues and myself were pretty interested and were pretty excited that wellness is a huge topic of conversation now. I think uh, the chair from Stanford gave a great talk uh, about just what wellness is and how we're addressing it as a community here in EM. Now, what I think I really enjoyed hearing was her the commentary after the actual presentation about how moral injury plays into this and how wellness should be addressed from a more systemic perspective rather than, quote-unquote, kind of putting the blame on the provider. So a lot of times I think we talk about how you just need to be more resilient, you just need to do more yoga, you just need to here's a massage session or a coupon for a massage session, feel better, right? And I think what we need to start addressing is how, especially for residents who work a ton in the emergency department, who are already pretty much pushed to their limits and their resiliency, there's not much more resilient than they can be. And I think as a system, we need to address how, what program directors, what our higher-ups can do to address some of the systemic issues plaguing not just residents, but ED physicians in general. So we talked about things like, you know, we were just talking about things like getting our schedules ahead of time, getting, you know, um, husks in the ED to actually help with making phone calls. You know, these are things we don't have right now. And it would be really useful, and I think it would greatly benefit resident wellness and physician wellness in general to have some of these systemic issues actually sorted out rather than putting the blame on residents. Yeah, so I think a lot of people talk about, there's a lot of talk about burnout and wellness at the moment, but the two things I took away was the link to physiologic physiologic health and how it affects physicians, and then also the financial cost to institutions as well, and I think those both of those things are really quantifiable, and that brings this issue more power, I think, to make change and make improvements, so... There were also several excellent abstracts that were presented during the plenary session today, and I caught up with some attendees at the break so we could hear some of the highlights. Yes, well today, as an infectious disease researcher, I learned a great deal from Daniel Rogan's work at Stanford, uh, suggesting that cell-free DNA, while highly elevated in ICU patients with positive blood cultures, is not a useful predictive marker for patients coming into the ED. I felt it was really interesting how they were tying in more of the ultrasound components like the mitral valve velocities and changes and whatnot to the tamponade and and risk stratifying that when to transfer somebody as to like when they might be okay without. Next in the lineup was Austin Johnson. He is a emergency medicine physician and researcher at UC Davis, and he spoke today about his experience when he was an emergency medicine resident during the Aurora movie theater shooting on June 20, 2012. On that sad day, 12 people were killed and 70 others were injured, 58 of them from gunfire. He shared his story and some of the points that he learned from being a emergency medicine physician during that mass casualty. So I am going to be talking about um, mass casualty um, and disaster medicine, but really specifically about uh, the shooting in Aurora, Colorado, 
that it happened uh, in the movie theater in 2012. And our experience um, at the university that night when we took care of um, a large portion of patients who showed up really, really quickly um, and somewhat unannounced and kind of how we dealt with that. I use it very much as a um, try to put people in the place, try to feel what it was like. So, and then, and then it's really just highlighting those little things that, you know, this has been many years now, but I still reflect back on it. And how did it change my practice? How did it change how I think about emergency medicine? Um, so that's kind of, that's what the talk will be about. The one thing that's universal, I think, coming from my talk and, and what I talk about is that this, you know, taking care of lots of sick patients due to um, mass casualty and, and gun violence is unfortunately becoming the norm. Um, and so I think either you will experience it as a listener or you will know someone who has been part of one of these uh, big, huge uh, resuscitations and one of these mass casualty incidents. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I use, I don't talk about this very often. Uh, you know, my, as I don't give this talk that often when I do to our residents, I use it to encourage them to truly master every little bit in the emergency department. I really think when these big events happen, you need to be, um, self-sufficient, um, as an emergency medicine physician. That's one of the things that we do is you need to know one, where everything is. You need to know how to do everything. You need to know how to set up your art lines how to, you know, how to every last little bit of taking care of a patient, really, you should be able to do. And that's sort of actually where we come from as emergency medicine physicians, too, is we come from the jack of all trades who gets things done. Um, the other part is you need to know who your colleagues are. You need to know everyone else in the emergency department, what their skill sets are. And I give some some little tidbits on why that's important, both really good things and then, you know, I, some mistakes that we made because, because of... of uh, not knowing everybody really, really well. Um, and then the final thing I talk about, and usually I end my talk with is around teamwork, um, which is that these big mass casualties are only successful with phenomenal teamwork. And it's both, I end with, you know, this is teamwork around getting things done, around saving lives. And it's teamwork about the team after the fact. It's the team and how do you take care of your team afterwards? Because anyone who's been part of one of these realizes that it's a, it is a, uh, it has a lasting impact on everyone. Whether or not we think it will or not, um, it will have an impact on your life. And it's really important to uh, help each other through that. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot of these um, these lessons and these take-home points that you try to impress upon the residents and whenever you're giving this talk. Where do you think we sort of as a specialty need to be going with this? How can we be better prepared for these kinds of events? Because unfortunately, we think they're going to be all too common. As a specialty, yes. I think, you know, when I, when I think back on my training early on, I don't think, you know, we'd learn a little bit about mass casualty, right? You'd, you'd hear about it. You learn a little bit about triage. And unfortunately, I think more and more we're going to end up having to not just learn about it a little bit, but there'll be more true training in it. Um, we now, as you both know, we, we do training like entire days at the hospital where everybody is involved. And I think unfortunately that that, that kind of stuff is, is needed because um, it's no longer, because it's no longer if it's gonna happen, it's really when it's gonna happen. Um, and most 
you know, and it's not every single physician out there was going to end up going through it, but a lot of people are going to end up being faced with these. And it's, and so for us, it was, you know, over 20 severe GSWs that came in, you know, in a very short amount of time. For someone else, it might be a single provider in a small rural place where they're the only person and there's a rollover and they get five criticals, right? So wherever you are, I think we have to be training more, really understanding our resources. Um, I think that's where we're, where we're going. I think that's really interesting. I actually, and I don't think about other people thinking about it, but I actually do think about that going into a shift. Like, is today going to be the day? Like, am I going to be the one that does that and kind of like visualize myself in that role? Do you ever do that, Sarah? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> yeah, especially any time that I'm on my way into like a D-pod shift where I, I know I've got the chance of this happening. And I, yeah, I definitely, I go through it and... Just because I've been through it once doesn't mean I would be any better at it, right? I think the only thing it did is it made me focus on how do I become better, right? How do I become more prepared um, so that if something happens, I can I can hopefully rise to the occasion. Um, that's all. I mean, that's all we can hope for. The last talk of the day was given by Stephen Bird. He's an emergency medicine physician, the vice chair of education at UMass Medical School, and the current president of SAM. He shared his own story and several maxims from his own career journey. We recorded him before he gave his talk to give us some insights on the value of scholarship and where he sees scholarship going. I'm going to talk about the value of scholarship in residency or in your career. And um, as part of that, I'm going to share my story as well as some maxims that I've learned over the last 25 years that help inform my history and my career and hopefully inform others and help others as well. Do you have a favorite piece of your story or a favorite maxim that you think kind of sums up the key points you want to get across? Yeah, that's a great question. There are a number of maxims. I think, um, you know, what informed my story really was a change in career. So I started in neurosurgery in the Navy uh, down in San Diego and did that for a couple of years. We went to flight school, and then I was deployed to Okinawa, Japan for two years with a Marine Corps squadron. And so one of the first weeks I'm there, I go to the Navy hospital in Okinawa and say to the neurosurgeon, say, hi, I'm Steve Bird. I worked with you back in Bethesda, and I would like to see patients in your clinic and help you in the OR. And I had worked with this guy before, and he said, people come to see me. So it was patently obvious I was not welcome. So I knew some of the guys, and they were all guys back then who'd worked in the, who were working in the ER in Okinawa because I knew them in San Diego. And so I said, hey, I'm here for two years. I'm thinking of emergency medicine now. And would you mind if I come work with you uh, for free? Because right? I'm in the Navy. No one's really getting paid. And you can imagine what they said when someone was volunteering to come work with them. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Please. When can you start? <laughs> and so that was my career-defining moment. When I changed from neurosurgery, um, was not welcome to uh, arms wide open, uh, we'll teach you, you can work with us. And since then, I've been, you know, 100% emergency medicine. So the, the maxim is help people with their career when you have an opportunity and don't say no. What do you see as the future of types of scholarship? Are you seeing a change in that with uh, new generations coming forward and what that academic output looks like? Yes, that's a great question. I think, you know, traditionally it's been NIH-sponsored research, right? I mean, that is also the currency of the academic promotion process. NIH budgets are flat. The cost of doing the research has increased as salaries have gone up. 
So I think that will always be a key component of it. But I think other things that we are seeing, so everyone is on EMRs now, right? Something like 90% of us are on Epic or Cerner. So there's lots of data. We have gobs of patients available to us. So I think you will see more kind of quality projects, um, operations kind of projects where you're using big data from EMRs. I think that's, that's clearly going to be one. I don't know if there's going to be any change in the education realm of scholarship other than things like electronic formats and podcasts, those forms of mediums and how they affect education. Now, one thing that we don't have a lot of is what are the outcomes of that, right? But with these new mediums, are we changing outcomes, knowledge retention, clinical competency, things like that? which I think is going to be important, right? You have to have the value proposition. It can't just be fun and interesting. I would hope. I think I would like there to be some hard outcomes as well. So the final highlight of the day was the award for the best abstract from the plenary session. And to present this award, we had Dr. Jim Holmes, who's a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis. And he's also the mastermind behind this conference. And he really put together a great conference. So we caught up with Jim Holmes and told us a little bit about the winning abstract and then shared some of the things that really resonated with him today. We had some great abstracts this afternoon, but uh, we ultimately awarded Nick Levin from the University of Utah on his abstract that evaluated the MUSE score and the ability of the MUSE score and changes in the MUSE score to identify patients that get sicker in the emergency department and probably need ICU care. And what was the point of, the, of their study? What did they learn from that? Well, they get a MUSE score on the patients when they first show up in the emergency department, but what he wanted to do is something that hadn't really been studied before, is look at changes of that score over a period of time in the emergency department to help predict which patients are having the um, kind of not going as well as you'd like and, and need additional resuscitation. And what did they find? They found that the MUSE score can identify those patients that need additional resuscitative efforts, and potentially it could identify patients that you otherwise wouldn't suspect need to go to the ICU. Will it change anything for you, Jim? It certainly could. It has the possibility. I'll look for them to um, validate this in another uh, study sample. But once they do that, it would be a useful tool. Perfect. Anything else that was important from today or surprising to you? Well, I think seeing some of the um, discussions about wellness and, and, and um, how it impacts emergency physicians, especially, and, and that we do need to take care of ourselves and we need to take care of this now, it's really something that strikes home. So, Julia, we had an awesome day today. So many cool things that we were part of and we got to listen to. What was something that really stuck out to you? You know, for me, I would sum it up in being ready. You know, Austin's story was really powerful. And I think part of the power in it was because I think about myself in that role. Like, what if I'm that provider that's on during that mass casualty? And um, it made me want to go home and go on a scavenger hunt and make sure that I know where every last supply is and how to be able to use the Belmont and be able to do everything myself because it might be I, that I don't have all the resources, the luxuries that I'm used to in the setting of a mass casualty. It makes me want to go and find out where that eighth or ninth laryngoscope blade is because as Austin found, they used all of them. They even had to clean one before they got ready for the next one. So I want to go home and I want to be ready. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. You know, another thing that really struck me was how much people wanted to keep talking about wellness. And we know that wellness is an important topic. I mean, it's 
topic of a lot of podcasts and a lot of things in the media. But I was struck by how many people were impacted by this. And I had medical students coming up and saying how glad they were to hear this as a topic that was featured in SAM or that was being discussed. We had faculty that were talking about it, residents that were talking about it. And you've heard a lot of people's comments, so I won't go into it. But <laughs> but it was really interesting that that's still such an important piece for people. And I hope that we can continue this conversation about wellness and about being ready and about scholarship online. Right, Sarah? Yeah, so we've got several hashtags and several things for you to follow. So as always, you can follow us on social media as at Impulse Podcast. You can also follow the conference um, account at at WRSAEM19. And we're using the hashtag, hashtag WRSAEM19. And you can follow that on Twitter as well as Instagram. And another thing that you can follow is keep posted in your podcast feed because we are going to be doing another summary tomorrow. And it's going to be an interesting day because you're going to be in the simulation wars, right? And I'm going to be in the main conference room. We're going to be talking about the highlights of pediatric emergency medicine, time management for emergency medicine, social emergency medicine papers, and so much more. It's going to be a really interesting day and I'm excited to hear what uh, our speakers are going to share with us. Yep, lots to come tomorrow. Tune in.